0: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
1: When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American waterfowl. Hello and welcome to another episode of the North American Waterfowler podcast. My name is Elliot and I am here today with a guest, Douglas, I'm already forgetting how to say your last name. Spala. Spala. I was pronouncing it spale my whole life. For months I've known the name in my head, that's how I've been pronouncing it, so it's going to take me a while. Yeah, it happens
2: to a lot of people and a lot of friends, so I I like watching people squirm with it for a bit.
1: (laughs) And it's a Czech name which is interesting for sure. Can you go, Douglas, go ahead and tell us um, kind of your qualifications, um, what organizations you're a part of, and also where people, because I know I love your Instagram account and, and shout that out too here off the bat.
2: Yeah, thanks. So my name is Douglas Spala. I'm an attorney for the Corps of Engineers here in the Kansas City District. Uh, I also serve on the board of directors for Pheasants Forever, originally from Nebraska Spent some time in Chicago, but now I'm back here in the Kansas City area on the Kansas side. And my Instagram is my dog's name, Shunka O. War, which is S-U-N-K-A underscore O underscore War, W-A-R.
1: And it's a really interesting Instagram account. I know I had been... I had been following you before we started communicating. And I don't remember how we started communicating, but it was quite a while before I even realized you're in my area. I don't remember how long I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Or actually, and I, yeah. I
2: like your stuff initially because you hunt with your dad. And that's a lot of what I did growing up. And it's just right. cool to see that father son combo out there. And I just, yeah. and your interaction and interplay with your father is just
1: fun to watch. And that really got me into yeah. your content. I'm glad you view it that way because some people have given me comments like I'm mean to him and stuff. It's like a father-son. I wouldn't say locker room necessarily, but like you know, you tease each other, right? You give each other a hard time. Like it's kind of the deal. But yeah, so I'm, yeah, you're you like in stuff. your
2: element out there, and right. it's kind of like how me and my dad. I mean, he's probably been competitive and pushed you to be better at things your whole life. So there's always this little banter that exists right. between you two, and you guys have a good chemistry. It's it's cool yeah. to see.
1: He's 80 now and slowing down quite a bit. And we, a few years ago, we decided to put a blind on our, on our boat specifically for the reason, cause we're not, we're not boat blind guys. It's just, I don't find them to be conducive to getting birds at 20, but um, <laughs> some of the guys up in the Dakotas know how to brush them. But for, we just, we're not that type of hunter, but I told him, I was like, we got to get this boat blind on here. So that when you're 80, 82, 83, you can still go. And uh, now we're in that situation. Where we've got three really cool trips lined up where we can specifically use the boat blind and he's going on him. So it's really awesome to know that he's still got three big trips lined up and we're talking about it all the time. And so, yeah, the father son hunting relationship is special for sure.
2: Yeah. My dad's 74 and he's, You know, aging pretty well too. And I think that was one of the other draws on your stuff is your dad's getting older and you do a lot to accommodate him to put him on great hunts. And that's kind of what I do for my father too. I'd haul the decoys, set up the hunts. If we're in a blind, I got to bring a little ladder for him to get in and out. So I
1: like that. Yeah, that's great. Why don't you talk a little bit about your dad and your upbringing and how you got into um, hunting and what kind of hunting and for for those of you that that um are like i know i've heard this guy before he was on recently on duck season somewhere podcast so i'm going to try to hit fresh stuff if you haven't seen him over there listen to that podcast with ramsey russell you definitely need to do it i'm going to try to make this completely different but um he was just on there and it was really good content so anyway anyway go ahead
2: yeah so i was adopted as a kid 18 months old and i grew up in nebraska my father comes from a A line of hunting a hunting family and my mother did too and so growing up I hunted with my dad my brothers my grandparents all in Nebraska and that's kind of what got me started people ask me do I remember my first hunt and I I don't because we started so early but I I remember some of those first years when I was 12 with my with my first Labrador so that's kind of what I did I would do a lot of duck hunting on the Platte River and then chase a lot of upland birds across Nebraska and then did a lot of goose hunting in the evenings just between Omaha and Fremont, Nebraska.
1: Where, where in Nebraska exactly um, did you grow up?
2: Yeah, so I'm from Fremont. We spent a few years in West Point, but mostly in Fremont, and that's on the east side. It's like 20 minutes west of Omaha. Okay, 20 minutes. So how close is that to the Missouri River? The Missouri River is on the east side, so that would probably be maybe an hour or so. But we hunted the Platte River, which is just south of Fremont, and it goes east to west, right across gotcha. the state, about
1: halfway. And growing up, you guys just did a combination of upland and waterfowl, or were you heavy waterfowl or upland? I've
2: always been kind of half and half. I really love chasing ducks, but I really love chasing upland birds too. So it was just kind of as the day progresses. You know, you get a you get your five, six ducks in the morning, and you could be done by an hour after sunlight, and it's like, what do you do, go home? No, you know,
1: let's go, let's right. go chase some upland birds. Yeah, um, one of the main things that drew me to your Instagram account was your love of your dogs. I mean, your dogs are all over your Instagram account. What are? Give me your current dogs, and then go back to your upbringing. Were you guys hunting over dogs? What were the breeds?
2: Yeah, so I guess we'll start from the beginning. I've always had black labs. My dad had black labs. My brothers had black labs. I've had black labs. So it's always been our thing. Just always black dogs chasing dogs. Males
1: or females boys. or a mix of both?
2: All females, too. Uh, so obviously, That's just like us. <laughs> I love your... Yeah, it's kind yeah. of weird how that works. but uh, yeah. And I, I just think females are a little easier to have in the house and stuff. And they just seem a little more biddable. And that's, that's our position. Anyways, so I've always had black labs. And I started off with Shadow. That was my first dog. And she was with me for 13 years. And then I moved to Chicago. And then I got Shunka. That was my second lab. She passed away. Now I'm on my third lab, which is Kutope, And she's two and a half. And then last year, I took a trip to Montana with a guy from western Kansas. And he has these beautiful English shutters. And we went out there and went home with a possession limit of sage grouse, sharp tails, and huns. And by the time I got back from Montana, we drove, I had already bought myself a setter. So (laughs) I have an English setter now, too. (laughs) So
1: after that trip, you're automatically on the phone. Did he tell you where you could get one or how did that process of selection go?
2: Yeah, it's like a 15 hour drive. So after, you know, that high wears off, I'm like, okay, where did you get all these setters? Because he had five on his truck at the time. He goes, oh, this guy out in Utah. And I said, what's his number? He gives them to me in probably hour eight or nine. Call him and I said, Hey, you have any more dogs left? I'm coming back through in a month. And he goes, Yeah, I got two. I'll send you pictures and you can pick one. And I got home and I had to convince my wife, Hey, I need to get an (laughs) English setter too. And we were looking for a house at the time. So she said, If we can find a house, you can get another dog. Within a week, we had an offering on a house and we got one. (laughs) So I drove out the next day, I don't know, maybe a week or so before we closed that house and picked up that dog. It took a cool tour up to the West coast, but, or the West, the West, but yeah, that's how I got her.
1: Now, was it a puppy when you got her? or Was it already trained and ready to roll? She was six months. So she was ready to get
2: dropped and start running. So that was, Mm -hmm. that was fun. So I, that was kind of a cool trip. So I stopped in Colorado on the way to uh, Idaho to pick her up. I did a front range hunt out there with my friends from front range guide service, then went up to Idaho, watched field trial of bird dogs and picked her up, which was insane. We went to Montana, and we can talk about this later. And went out and hunted the Blackfeet tribe out there, and did a naming ceremony for her. And then I went up to Calgary, Alberta, met up with some friends, and hunted huns there. And then dropped back down. It was like a week or so trip. It was it was pretty epic just just to go get
1: that dog. Did she? So did she start hunting immediately, or did she still need to be trained? Nope. But. Right away, I put her down right at six months and. She wasn't great
2: or anything, but with those bird dogs, they're a little easier. You can just drop them and start letting them roll. Yeah. And so she pointed some birds, picked up a few birds, which I don't really care if she picks up birds, but she does a good job running and pointing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was kind of the beginning of our season together.
1: So I don't know anything about training upland game dogs. What is the process compared to training a lab to prepare for waterfowl? What is the process of training? an upland dog. You said it's easier. It's, it's less, less work intensive. It's in that first year. And this is for
2: the pointing dogs. Cause there's flushing dogs for upland right. too. So let's just talk about the pointing dogs. So that first year is really about building that dog's confidence, getting it to kind of stretch out and find, go out and find birds and getting it to just hold them. And when I say find, you know, really these, these setters and some of the pointers are like big running dogs. So they'll run mm-hmm. out there 300, 400, 500 yards in front of you. And look for objectives to find birdie cover. And that's really- and that's what natural to them. They naturally do that, right? They're bred yeah, into that. Yeah. Them. This one runs at like 300 right now. I say like consistently, she's about 300 yards in front of me, but she'll go up at this weekend up to back to the Dakotas when they run them on horseback
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that'll really stretch her out. She should be at like five, six, 700 yards
1: consistently oh in gosh. front of you looking for birds. It's, it's cool. How, how, so when they point at 700 yards what is the process is it like sprinting everyone's just start <laughs> sprinting how does that work <laughs> well when we, you're wa- well, i grew up hunting behind britney's my uncle had britney's and they're close quartering
2: dogs yeah and it there's was so nice of though. Hunting. but yeah. yeah yeah sorry i didn't interrupt you but yeah there's some nice britney's that can really get out there but usually you run a brace so you have at least two of those dogs on the ground and when one of them points you kind of just move on over to that area and if you're hunting sharp tails huns quail those birds hold pretty good so you can yeah. have time to walk or ride up there
1: but if you're hunting pheasants you kind of got to
2: get there otherwise that yeah it's going to run off
1: do they have um collars that that beep when they're on point seven or six yards i just can't even imagine that's such a long ways out there
2: <laughs> they don't but when you're running on the prairies like that you, it's pretty flat so you can see them and the okay. setters and the pointers because they have those big tails you can see that tail cracking left and right so you you know right. where that dog's going to be at and they should be moving with you when you move left to right or forward so they kind of it's kind of just like having a super long extendo arm out there and you see them moving yeah but you know when they stop and then we have gps collars on them so uh-huh. your collar your handheld will beep and say it's on point. And then you can kind of look on that GPS where that dog's at in a direction.
1: And that's, that's a game in itself too. Yeah. But do they run that far most of the time or is it mostly more like with a hundred yards? Is that just special occasion they get that far or is that just their rent? Like you're, is that ideal that you have dogs that, that range that far for
2: what I like to do? It is, but a lot of people do not enjoy having a dog that can range that far. There's a, uh, some caution with that one. You know, you clear a a hill and it's at, and that dog's seven hundred yards in front of you. You you can't see it for a while, and that makes some people uncomfortable. And some people like watching the dogs work back and forth. And you don't get that same perspective when the dog's at fifty yards. Right when it's at five hundred yards, you're not really seeing every little movement. But to me, I, I really enjoy letting, they call them, let them roll or let them rip. I really like letting them just go and yeah. out there. And we're from Kansas and this is prairie chicken country. So you got to put on some time and some distance and having a 50 yard dog chasing prairie chickens, you're covering a lot less land than having a 700
1: right. yard dog out there. Right. That's fascinating. I, I don't want to, I want to have a long talk about <laughs> prairie chickens, but I don't want to <laughs> jump to it too quick. Yeah. It's a, it's a very passionate topic with me Prairie chicken hunting, um, because we did so much of it growing up. It's, it was kind of our thing for a while. Cause I, I played high school basketball, high school baseball. And, and so in the fall, um, a lot of times basketball had started kind of during, during the season. So we couldn't do a lot of just all day hunting. We had practice on, on Saturdays, but we, so we honed in on kind of prairie chicken. So I want to talk about that more. Moving forward, I think I might have sidetracked you about, about all, did you go through all of your dogs that, or did I yeah. jump in the middle yeah. and sidetrack? So I've had, I'm on my fifth one. Yep. Okay. So I'm heavy into the dog stuff right now. So um, I've got so many, <laughs> so many questions I want to <laughs> ask about it. Um, you're now, when you upland hunt, you've got um, your lab and your setter at the same time. Mm-hmm. Talk about that relationship and how those work in in tandem. Yeah. So that's
2: kind of been a learning process. This is my first bird dog, the pointer. And honestly, that lab kind of keeps me company when that setter's out there really rolling on the prairie. But what I use that lab for long-term, I hope we can do is she picks up all the birds that I shoot. She works close. So she kind of is a secondary confidence thing for us. hmm And then it'd be really cool if I can get that setter to point, that lab to flush, the bird to go up, and that setter to stay, and that lab to sit and mark it and then go on my command like a retrieve. That's what I
1: want. That's my long-term goal, but we're working towards it. Yeah. So what, what improvements do you need to make to get to that?
2: Well, she's doing, she's been training all month. So it's going kind to, of, it's just kind of like a whistle sit once she, once she flushes that bird. So just right. really refining that whistle sit. I just haven't have had them work together on this skill yet. Right. Yeah. So you have your lab at a trainer right now, right? Yep. Yep. She's up north at Castile Creek Kennels, which is up in Gower, Missouri, an hour north of here.
1: And you said they've got her running um, in some hunt tests right now.
2: She'll start next weekend, or the 5th of August. Yeah, so she's been up there since April. What? I got married in April, and we went on a honeymoon. And it's super easy just to leave your dog with a trainer when you just have all those festivities. And then we were gone for most of May, and I came back, and she said she was doing pretty good. So I said, oh, we'll leave her out there for June. She was doing pretty good, and we just had a lot going on. So I left her out there for July, and I was like, well, let's just run her in some tests this, this summer before I'm done. So she'll do her AKC junior test this August and then I'll bring her back and we'll go up to North Dakota. I I, I she's like 75% where we could enter in a senior test, but I don't know, I kind of like following you where you did the the was it started yep. season finished and just yes. go like I think that's a better progression cuz you could jump and if we have failures, I think I'd feel bad. So let's just do it this way. Yeah. And, go through this process and be able to maybe write about it or something too by kind yeah. of holding that dog back she's two and a half so some of her litter mates already have their master titles but i you i'm like you i hunt too much i, I can't keep yeah. her out a kennel all from
1: august to may every year it, it's right august to march it's too much when i started so i had no idea i was going to get into this and i did it just to try to prove to myself i could and i had this high power dog and i was kind of partnering with flatlander kennels and it's yeah. like he Chris job had said something to me when we had talked about it, like, well, what if you don't basically suck as a trainer and make me look bad? And so he said it in different <laughs> words, but that would just kind of lit a fire in me. It's like, okay, I've got to make absolutely certain that I do this dog. Job. I mean, her father's one of the better dogs in North America at AKC and HRC hunt tests. It will end up in the hall of fame. It's like, I have got to prove to him and to myself that I can do it. And so yeah. I got a little bit of a late start and I went really slow on the training with her. I was like, I'm just going to go nice and slow. Cause I had never, ever trained a dog formally like this before. Mm-hmm. I had my previous dog had been steady and kind of brought the bird to hand <laughs> a little when she wanted to, she brought the bird to hand when she didn't, she didn't. And, but other than that, I'm like, that's good. Um, but this one I'm like, I put all this time investment into, and I was going to jump into season, which at HRC is the middle level. And I talked to Chris and he's like, no, 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 no you've never even done this before. Cause a lot of that is just like for yourself you know, mm-hmm. uh, and the process and everything. So it was really good to go through that bottom up and see the whole thing and take it slow. And, and the first test I took her to the holding blind is basically the dog that's on deck is in behind this little base, little curtain, this little holding blind. And Georgie just freaked out she was screaming trying to jump over the thing and we were in started where they give you tons of room and they're like basically um you need to move your dog back and let me just tell you if you move up to season and she acts like that you're out (laughs) so uh, it was embarrassing but i would rather it be it started than jump in farther and so
2: this episode is supported by fx's clipped
1: Learn more at marines dot com so you have a two and a half year old now is a pointing lab or just,
2: um, just, just a just a regular lab she's got field trial parents and she's just a regular old American lab that's right. really hot and enjoys picking up enjoys picking up
1: birds. Have you ever thought about um getting a pointing lab no and once you I, have
2: a once you have a setter or once you have a really nice pointing dog, there's 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 no need no to get a pointing right. lab i I don't right. need it, yeah. Because you've got the best of both worlds with you, and why? And that's why I picked the it. setter too. I did. I, mm-hmm. I was like, I can get the best dog. The dog that's more or less the best for retrieving is a lab, mm-hmm. and for the pointing side, between a setter and a pointer, English pointer. I mean, those
1: are the two best for that. So why not have the right. best of both worlds? I don't need to be right. mixing the two. Yeah, that makes sense. We I talked to we talked to several guys at these hunt tests that have. Pointing labs and and actually my dad his his first lab was a pointing lab but we got it so mm. heavy into duck hunting that we just never went upland anymore once we started duck hunting it was like that's all that's all we did and actually now that I'm getting older I'm having these strong desires to do more up to do some more some upland because we just quit upland altogether I mean we yeah. went from upland only. And we weren't avid on upland like we were on waterfowl hunting because you know it was like we would go upland four or five times a year. My uncle had farmland around mid mid Kansas and everything, um, but he had one and it just was a duck dog. a duck dog. Yeah, so I mean, if
2: you ever seen a pointing lab on point, it it looks cool. But once you see like a nice setter a nice pointer on point, you're like, okay, that's that's what it should look like. And right. after that, you're you're sold.
1: Yeah, I, I I was hunted behind German Shorthairs a couple of times, but most mostly Brittany's. and I, I think real highly Britneys because that's what I was around and that's what I knew, and they're sweet little dogs. But like I said, they I don't know if all Britneys quarter close. I know my uncle's always stayed inside of like seventy yards.
2: I got a buddy here that I shoot with and hunt with occasionally, and he's got some Brittany's that really can stretch out there too. They're mm-hmm. they're really nice. They're like field trial Brittany's. They're they're really nice. Right.
1: For all, my, for all I know, that's how my uncle trained them. I have no idea. I just know that they were there, and it was really cool when they went on point, and yeah. I shot and missed at a lot of quail. <laughs> <laughs> is there is there anything that you can do as an upland hunter to calm yourself on the when they flush right from under your feet? Because I could never, ever – I was always so startled I was shooting off my back foot. So here's – so
2: having – running a flushing dog with a pointer I think helps you out because you can – you see that dog point, and then you see this flushing dog come in and mm-hmm. flush the birds. And you're a little bit further back, so you can watch for the quail. You can watch right. that covey rise, right. take your moment, pick out your bird, and shoot one, as opposed to doing the flush yourself because you're like anticipating. And you can watch that dog get close to that those birds on the ground before yeah. it flushes up. And I think that's a little easier. I, don't worry. I, I stepped on a covey of 20 sharptail in Montana last year and missed both shots my buddy, <laughs> my buddy got it on film and refuses to post it online just out of respect for me but it was it was bad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure i would have been so kind <laughs> people that have not been up on hunting have no idea the kind of loud eruption the quail or pheasants or, or chickens whatever i mean they erupt it is loud yeah. when they come out close to you I was always back foot shooting. My shooting percentage on quail, I bet you, was like, I'm lucky if it's 15%. <laughs> yeah.
2: And that's kind of the challenge, though. If you wake up and you shoot your ducks and then you hop it over to a quail, a covey of quail right away, your first shot, if you can if you can nail your first shot, you're really good. It's tough because it's just a different movement. You're, you're right.
1: standing different. That bird is a lot smaller. Yeah, it's, yeah. It it can be fun, though. Well, and the singles are easier, but the, when on the covey flesh, there's so many of them. Just picking a bird out is... An art form, yeah. Because it's just like you got twenty birds, all you know, the size of a robin, essentially scattering quickly in every direction. <laughs> I mean, come on.
2: Yeah, like when I go down to the southeast, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, they they have a, a lot more genteel rules. So it's like you only shoot one bird off a covey, so you hmm. get one shot after of covey rise. So that kind of helps you though, because you think, all right, one bird out of the covey, take one good shot. Good, right. you shoot. You push put up seven or eight cubbies an hour, though, so you don't feel bad about missing one either. <laughs> yeah. Are those planted birds or wild? They're wild where I go, but there's a lot of planted bird places, too.
1: Yeah. Have you ever seen planted birds flush even anywhere close to as strong as wild birds? No. And I've even seen wild birds flush into planted birds before. And
2: even when the cubbies mix, they you can tell which is which. Yeah. Those wild birds are getting out of there. They're like, yeah. I've done this before. See ya. Yeah, the planted birds just don't they don't have that
1: urgency right my dad um, raised quail and we tried planting well, it was mostly him and my uncle for a couple of years tried the whole planting bird stuff and and i went on a couple of those hunts and it just wasn't satisfying to me the flush for one but not only that knowing they're not wild birds it's why i like quail better than pheasants it, i mean pheasants flush great but to me knowing they weren't here for 400 years, 500 years ago, makes a difference in opinion. Yeah, mind. but I I, I, still, I still love that it. Pl- I mean, I would still shoot them, but.
2: Yeah, and I think that planted bird scenario is one, good for training, but two, it's also a nice controlled environment to introduce someone to the sport because mm-hmm. you can just have that success and you can walk someone through the process. So there's, there's times where I think that's appropriate to do, but I, I don't do that that often. I'd rather burn $200 of gas and go to, to Montana and shoot wild birds. Right.
1: And I've got nothing against people that plant birds or those places that do it. It just, for me personally, the intrinsic value is not near what it is when you know you're hunting um, native wild birds. And that's, I want to shift into prairie chickens because that's one thing I love so much about prairie chickens (laughs) is that they feel so wild. They feel, I, I, I feel the depth of Kansas in them. When I see them, if that, does that make any sense? Oh, a hundred percent. And I think there's nothing like prairie
2: chicken hunting because where they're at is such a, I don't know if you want to say like primal, but it's just a, just, it's pure prairie and it's usually undisturbed prairie. So you're out there and you can kind of take a step back and think I could be doing this a hundred years ago and it'd be the same thing. Yeah. And then just seeing them get up and they're just such a, yeah, there's like an intrinsic Kansas part about hunting them or nebraska or whatever just an
1: intrinsic right. prairie part the plains the prairie, the prairie the plains right can give us tell us kind of what you know about prairie chickens I, i'm more I- interested in prairie kansas nebraska ish range like what's their habitat where do they live where do what do they feed on it give, give the listeners anything you know kind of around prairie chickens Yeah, so or sharp part- i even put sharp shells into that to me they're kind of you know Yeah, in Kansas we only have prairie chickens. We don't have sharp tails in Kansas, correct? Correct. Right. Yeah,
2: and most people call them the sharp tails and the prairie chickens. They all call them chickens. Like you could have people shooting chickens in Kansas and people shooting chickens in North Dakota, and it's they're different. They're a prairie prairie chicken or a sharp tail, but most people just call them chickens. And that range is from parts of Canada through Montana down into Nebraska, Kansas, and there's a there's a species of at water that was in Texas and there were some in Oklahoma too, but that was kind of that range. And it goes all the way, historically it goes all the way East into like Missouri, Iowa too. There's, there's like historic ranges of chickens, but they like that short grass prairie, which is that ankle high grass, kind of light feathered grass. And then during the summer, they feed on a lot of bugs and then towards the fall and winter, they feed on, they now feed on a lot of grain and they have their, they have the, kind of iconic leck behavior in the spring where they all go to their booming grounds and they do that chicken dance and make their noise. And Mm -hmm. they're just a really cool bird that I don't think a lot of people even hunt. And they're hard to hunt too, because you could, like I said, you could walk 12 miles on ideal chicken property and not see a single bird and then come back a week later and you'll see a group of 30. They're they're interesting. and It's funny that when I was a kid, I didn't know that you hunted prairie chickens with dogs really. Cause mm-hmm. up in Nebraska, we would just pass shoot them before we go try to do a goose hunt. Cause you can
1: time them. Right. And have you done that in the evening? That's pick, the how we did it.
2: Yeah. They're like a, they're like a time bird. So you know, five 5- to the minute, four. Yeah.
1: Right. To the they're, minute based on sunlight, based on cloud cover. Yeah. It was crazy. I've actually seen a guy or I,
2: I've talked to a guy online who said he used to use decoys and I'm trying to, I think that'd be kind of a fun experiment to see if decoys worked
1: yeah actually we had decoys um so let me give you a background on our prairie chicken hunt and you can give me your thoughts on it because i've always wondered if like guys like yourself or not necessarily you but there can be kind of elitist in every sport. Like some people think that jumping in a farm pond is something that a complete idiot would do for duck hunting, you know, where I'm mm-hmm. kind of like, Hey, if I got nothing better and I know some ducks are, I'll jump them. It can be fun. It's not my game. And so the way we hunted prairie chickens, I've always kind of wondered if like the hardcore traditional dog hunting prairie chicken guys look down on the pass shooting part of it. Um, I, I don't know how this started. My uncle, so we lived in middle central Kansas and my uncle was a farmer, had a bunch of land and my grandfather and my Mom's brother got my dad into hunting. So I don't know how long the, that my grandfather had been hunting these prairie chickens, but we had some traditional flocks and we knew the grass hills in the, the Smoky Hills range. Mm, yeah. no, the gypsum, gypsum hill range. Not,
2: oh, down south. The Smoky, yeah. Gypsum
1: yeah. Uh, where they lived and they would come into certain crop fields to feed. And so at the typically at the end of the opening day of Pheasant and Quail, we would head towards those fields and we'd all set up by time and we'd just sit there and wait. And you're staring off into the natural grass hills. And then all of a sudden, and for those of you who don't know, prey chickens, I believe, are the fastest I've always thought, correct me if I'm wrong, that they're the fastest game bird, not hmm. in They've been clocked up like 75 with a tailwind. They've been clocked up like 75, 80 miles an hour. They're one of the faster birds. I don't want to make claims that that aren't necessarily true, but I know they're one of the faster birds and you see them coming out of the hills and they're they have that unique flight pattern where they do heavy wing beats and then glide heavy wing yeah. beats and then glide and they're just coming straight at you like little missiles <laughs> and you, and. It's, it's thrilling when they come over the top of you. But like you said, they, they will be down to the minute. You can time them down to the minute, like two or three minute range. Then if it's cloudy, they'll come earlier. And so what we would do, and this is why we did it so much, is it was a 20-minute drive, maybe 25 to the fields. So in an evening, we could run out there and try to time it down to like be there 10 minutes ahead of time. I mean, they were that consistent on the time. And then we'd sit in the field and – most of the time they would not come right over us. The vast majority of the time they'd either miss us by 100 yards this way, 100 yards that way. Um, and then so my uncle carved my dad some silhouette decoys for no prey and prey chickens. And we <laughs> tried it one time. This was right towards this may have been my freshman year in college. And so we tried the decoys one time and right after we tried the decoys, we figured out that these chickens this year were coming out of the out of the hills crossing the road into the pasture field and they were cutting in between. There was a hedgerow that they built after the dust bowl. They built all these hedgerows mm-hmm. to control the dust. There was a cut in the hedgerow and we figured out they were coming through that cut every single time. And so that was about the last year that we hunted him because then all of a sudden out of the blue, a lawyer tells the farmer you could be liable and we lost access to this mm-hmm. traditional place. So this was the last year that we did it, but we were, that was, by far our most successful year. I mean, we, prob- we probably shot too many of them, honestly, because it was like a flock of 50, and we killed like 20 that year, um, <laughs> which if you're going out, there was so many times we didn't do well, but there's something about it that was so funny. And like I said, you could just go out there, jump at it 10 minutes at a time. They come in. You can leave, so it was a really, really quick hunt, but we had a greatly successful year that year, and so we didn't end up using the decoys, and my dad and I were talking about the other day. My dad's like, I really think those would have been successful if we had ever gotten around to doing it so do do you think that i'm your traditional bird dog people would kind of look negatively on that type of chicken hunting
2: um maybe i don't know i used to do it too but remember that was i'm 33 i was when i was 12 15 that was like 20 years ago and the chicken numbers have declined a bunch in this last two decades so it's harder to be like that's i'm sure back then there was good i mean to see a group of 50 is a, is a good thing to see it's yeah it takes me a long time to be able to find a group of 50 chickens now yeah they're just they're just harder to come by and their habitat's getting destroyed and it's just tough i, I don't think they'd look down on you i mean i think shooting a chicken is it's just like so planesy anyways i think it's really yeah. cool and you have an right. appreciation for the bird, so i don't think anyone would really get yeah. mad about how you harvest it because you definitely care for the bird itself and what it yeah. means to the prairies out here.
1: That was a huge part of it. And that that's that way with duck hunting anytime I was like having the bird in your hand, appreciating the feathers, you know, with the chickens, you always pull up that little, they have the long hairs on their neck that hide. I don't know what the technical term for it, that, that sack that balloons yeah. up in their display, which they've got the feathers that cover that. So, you know, you're pulling that up and yeah. stretching the, looking at that part of them and just have them in your hand is a huge, huge deal. There was one time, I don't know how big this flock was in my mind. Now this was a long time ago. In my mind, I feel like it was like hundred birds. We had come over us. I know it was, it was a one-time event that left a huge impression on me. And I did not think we got shots on it there, but I don't know whether they had combined groups that day, but there was, it was incredible how many birds were in that flock. I, I'm a little curious to, for you to give me more details on, cause you're the only person I've ever met that hunted them. Like we always used to. Um, yeah, we used so hay bales
2: get... though, so we would just sit behind a hay bale and figure out which fence line they're going to come come over, and we would just pass shoot them that way. But my and dad and grandpa, yeah, yeah, and old timers that I know would always tell me that when those when they saw flocks though that were like a hundred birds or more, they said it'd be like a cloud lifting on the ground off the ground, and you could just feel this just pressure moving towards you when that many prairie chickens got out, and I. I think that's why, you know, we've all, we've shot some and it's just so cool to see them, but it would be amazing to see a flock of a hundred plus get up at one time and what that would feel like just because they get up pretty fast. Right. And so just to see a hundred lift up off the ground at one time, that would be, that would be
1: something that I really hope happens one day. Yeah. Were you guys very successful in, um, that, that type of honey? Oh yeah. Pretty successful we struggled for years but it was just so fun but I, if i shot like 2 or 3 a year on like 10 hunts i'd be happy i mean our success rate was low and uh, i don't know now back then you could shoot two but it was always just like you're just trying to get one is <laughs> there a good population around there i mean mm-hmm. there so
2: up in like the sand hills and on the eastern side of the sand hills there were some pretty healthy populations and there still kind of is now but back i remember there's a lot of chickens out there
1: Yeah, we had multiple flocks. We had our A place, and then we had this other area that sometimes we would go to. But I mean, as far as I know, now we did start going up into the sand hills around Valentine, Nebraska, and walking the sand hills for. That's the first time we got into sharp tails. The only way we could tell the difference, you shoot them, is the tail come to a point at the end or is it a fan? Sharp tail versus chicken. So we and they're a little wider. Oh, are they? They have that where the chicken is kind of that yellow color
2: that sharp uh-huh. tail is that is is white and then the i call it like the flecking the sharp tail has that like fleck spots where the okay. chicken has those barred feathers oh now do they interbreed they do and i've shot a couple of hy- i've never shot a couple of hybrids but i know people that have shot some hybrids and there's there's like some famous hybrids up in north dakota that people monitor because because so, they cross habitat, so there will be sharptails and chickens, and it seems like those sharptails yeah. are a little dominant. So when you have a low population of chickens, your sharp tail population might rise, and then they hybridize, and then you kind of lose your chickens because oh. those hybrids can't breed either. So it's kind of a oh. tough thing to see when you get those hybrids because you're like, okay, I just lost a few more chickens now because the hybrid can't reproduce.
1: Oh, that that's interesting. And they're they're just mixed in. Like we would flush seven or eight. And Tim, in my way of thinking, it always seemed like they were just mixed in together, hanging out.
2: Yeah, and sometimes they do cross. And you might even get crosses where you would maybe have a covey of quail near chickens. Hmm. I think they're a little territorial where they don't get on top of each other, but they mm-hmm. can be close by.
1: We would just, we would go back in. This was 90, so it's been a long time. Um, I'm not sure... It was in between. I don't want to give the exact location, but it was huge public land areas. And they had um, this was before GPS and they had the big old windmills and all the windmills were numbered on them. And you'd have a map yeah. and you just start driving back in there. You wouldn't see anyone all day. Mm-hmm. And you get out and you just start walking. These you have to be careful because those, those sandals wind around. If you're not paying attention, you can look around. And you're the only one you see. And keeping <laughs> directions not that easy out there because of how how the structure is. But what a fantastic area of Nebraska that is.
2: And it's always funny when I go back there and I see all the out-of-state cars that get stuck because they don't realize, hey, this is a sandhill, so you might take a path and there's going to
1: it's just going to be all sand. You're going to have no traction. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, the sandhills are hidden gems. Do you still actively hunt the sandhills for sharptail and prairie chickens? Yeah, I did last year on opening September 1st. So we, when we were driving up to
2: Montana, we stopped off, I shot my sharptails, and we drove up to Montana. And cause they open Fantastic. up September one up there too. And I'll go back again this year, probably that first week. And then I don't go as much. We're, we're like Kansas city is a little far now from the sandhills. So I can do mm-hmm. a little more around here than go all the way out there. But I,
1: that sandhills, I have a special part in my heart for those sandhills. It's just beautiful. Yeah, I do too. We first started going up there cause it was the closest place that we could catch pike up in those uh, lakes up there. And yeah. so, cause we had gone to a big trip in Canada and caught a pike for the first time in our lives, and my dad starts looking. at us like, "I got to get some more pike in my life." And he found he found that area up there by Valentine. Mm-hmm. So we started fishing, and then next thing you know, we're up there hunting because <laughs> that area is just oh man, what a hidden gem!
2: Yeah, even when a kid, we used to go up and canoe in the summer on the Niobrara River and everything. So I yeah, spent a lot of time once. up there. Yeah. Yeah. Do you duck hunt up there at all? I've I've. Haven't waterfowl hunted any of those
1: small little watersheds in the Sandhills? So it's been a bucket list for me to do. My dad duck hunted him a couple of years when I was in college and I didn't make the trip. Um, and we just kind of stopped going up there as I live in the Kansas City area. But this year I'm going with Matt, uh, okay. the second weekend of October. So Because I've been talking about it for years and he has a lot of success in the Sandhills.
2: Yeah, I have wow. some friends who do really well. E- even last year, when there was no water, they were doing really well in the sandhills. For even for they, had, they were shooting some geese out there and everything. Mm. It's, it's a gem. Yeah. It's big though, so you got to really know what you're going. That's why I was telling someone the other day when they're like, "Oh, these Kansas regulations are going to keep are going to make people go to Nebraska." I
1: think good luck. They're they're not going to know <laughs> where to go up there. So good luck. <laughs> yeah. That was always my concern about there's so many potholes and ducks can just who says they're going to come to the one you're at? There's just so many of them. Yeah. Yeah. But Matt does well. So, I've got kind of a little guide on that trip, so I I am excited about it uh let's transition to your work with pheasants forever pheasants forever and uh kind of what is your role with them and and i have been told and i believe this that the upland population in kansas since last time i was hunting them has taken a, a dive so gonna talk about pheasants for forever and kind of where the prairie population is right now and what maybe the outlook for the future is
2: Yeah, so I serve on the board of directors for Pheasants Forever. So the board and myself kind of serve as the fiduciary to guide the organization, distribute its resources and go out there and be voices for the the upland community, especially it's Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So two organizations under the same umbrella. And uh, yeah, I think that's been the big struggle. In the past, since I've been around, I remember going up to Howells, Nebraska, when I was a kid, and we would shoot pheasants everywhere up there. And I go up there now, and it's farmed. And it's nothing against the ag. I'm not going to get mad at someone for making money. But the habitat is a big issue. And without habitat, I think you really struggle to have wildlife. And that's kind of the mission of Pheasants Forever, which is also the habitat organization, is to work with both public and private Individuals, entities, organizations to grow and develop and produce quality habitat for upland game birds. And that, that's a reciprocal effect for other wildlife species. Good pheasant habitat can be really good for whitetail. So that's, that's kind of what they're doing.
1: Where do you feel like Kansas is right now as far as the outlook of this year and moving forward? Do you think there's any, any chance of getting a significant bounce back? I think last year the, the,
2: the landscape looked better than what I had what expected last year with the big drought. But signing up more CR, CRP acres is definitely going to help. The rains this year is going to help. I, you said you've been scouting. I, I was driving through the Flint Hills mm. this weekend, and it looks really good out there. And I've heard good things about the Smoky Hills out, out west that, it's, that that grass is almost knee-high and everything this year. So I right. really hope it bounces back. If we need to continue the momentum and effort to building quality habitat. And that's just always going to struggle against the a- agricultural community. And that's the big thing with the chickens in Kansas, especially in the lesser prairie chicken is there's a bunch of ag interests that are against kind of regulating those habitat for the chickens. And that really makes things difficult for those birds.
1: Well, I you know in the, in the eighties, I graduated 91, I'm 50 right now. So when I was in high school, graduating in 91, it's like upland game hunting was the thing. If I knew people that hunted, they were talking about upland game hunting or, or deer hunting. People didn't talk about duck hunting. And now I think it's different. If you're, if you're going to be talking about hunting, which there's precious few of us hunters around quite honestly, but it's going to be waterfowl hunting. So it's like, it's kind of shifted. And I hate to think of, the loss of Upland in mm-hmm. Kansas because it used to. My perception is it used to be world class. I know I used to hunt around kind of Clay Center area. We went out around the Clay Center area one time and yeah, you know, it was just amazing out there. And it saddens me that it's not what it used to be.
2: Yeah, I mean, you go past what's it like Russell and stuff on I eighty and there's big pheasants up there. And you think about your bag limit. What? How many other states have a four rooster bag limit? I mean, that's remnants of this being a world class place to hunt pheasants and it's just not that much and here's an interesting one that i can ask you then so do you remember growing up seeing a hundred thousand snows winter in north central kansas i mean when did those snow yeah. geese really start showing up because i think that's probably some of the change too right i mean you get yeah there's a bunch of snow geese that winter here and there's not not that they're like correlating but it's just you're it's
1: changed yeah yeah yeah, I was totally not in tune with waterfowl all the way up through high school. So, we—I <clears throat> had one duck hunt uh, when I was 13 out at the bottoms, a little teal hunt. Other than that, I don't—I didn't. We didn't do any. I mean, waterfowl hunting was just not on my radar. On my mm-hmm. dad did did some in the early 80s, late 70s, but it just wasn't. And I know it was a big sport back then, especially like at Cheyenne Bottoms, but it wasn't on our radar at all, um, as far as waterfowl i kept begging my dad to not necessarily begging him but i kept bringing it up to him to go waterfowl and once we did it just the light switch flipped on (laughs) and then you get a dog and i i tell you what
2: i love watching my setter run and i love watching her point but i still the my best moments are watching that black dog pick up a mallard and bringing it right. back to me. There's just something so special about yeah. seeing them pick up ducks. They're just they're just made for it. And it's yeah. it's a tough feeling to overcome to think anything is
1: better than it. <laughs> there is a book you would love. It's called Hunter. It's called Hunter's Road. Oh, yes, and, I read it. Oh, okay. Great. You know, um, so there's a Blackfeet
2: chapter in there with a guy named Joe Kip. And that's okay. who I hunted with out in Montana this year. Joe Kip. Oh. Thirty fantastic. years ago. And that's when he just first got started. I don't know what the chapter is called, but it's about it's about the guy going to the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. Mm-hmm. And that's who was my guide
1: when I went out there this last year. Do you remember the author of that book? It's Jim. I think it's Fergus. Jim's. I tried to contact him to have him on the because I've, I've read that book like a couple times and it's just such an incredible book. It's called A Hunter's Road. He's got a section in there where he does a duck hunt and he talks all about seeing because he hunted all the upland with his. Yeah, I think it was a yellow lab non-pointing yellow lab.
2: Yeah. And
1: he, he talks in depth about seeing the nature, true nature of his lab come out on this duck hunt. And he decided from that point on, he had to make sure at least a couple of times a year to allow his dog to do that. And so it made, reminded me of it when, when you said that.
2: <laughs> yeah. And like on those slow duck mornings, it's nice to be able to go chase pheasants or quail with the lab. Cause you know, your dog's been really good in that blind and she hasn't got to pick up any birds. Cause it's just a slow duck morning. And
1: it's like, Let's get out and let her run. Right. Right. Well, I think if it's okay with you, I'm going to break this into two separate episodes since we've already been talking 50 minutes. You have another hour.
2: Yep. Let's go. Geez, We right, cool. went fast.
1: It did. It, it did. And we only got very, we didn't get very far down, down the list. So those of you that are listening, right now um, i'm gonna have douglas back on the next episode we are going to talk about the army corps of engineers uh, and reservoirs we're going to talk about the kansas regulations which i'm really excited to talk about that um, because he as we said he is a lawyer for the corps and has some things insightful things to uh, talk about as far as regulations on Corps ground we're also going to talk about his time that he has spent hunting Native American reservations and, and, and what that's like. So do not miss it. Make sure and come back for the next episode with Douglas. Please say your last name. Spala. Spala. Think like I, a I, Impala. Spala. Impala. Impala. Spala. That's what I needed. That's what I needed. Go. <laughs> All right. So, Douglas, hang out and we'll just pick this right back up. All on the rest of you listening, you have listened to another episode of the North American Waterfowler podcast.